With towns and villages burning up and down the Connecticut River, and the Nipmuc threatening incursions even to the outskirts of Boston, the settlers and authorities of Massachusetts Bay Colony acted in the time-honored manner of people under existential threat. With paranoia and bigotry. For the settlers, the extreme violence and terror of the summer and fall of 1675 demonstrated that the Indians were the children of the devil, full of all subtlety and malice. The Puritans meant that literally, and they applied it pretty much to all Indians, even Christian converts. The only Indians they were willing to tolerate at this point were Mohegans and Pequots, who had proved effective combatants against the Wampanoag. After establishing praying Indian towns and essentially forcing Christian converts to live in segregation from those of their people who still practiced their heathen ways, the authorities, backed up by broad public support, now decided that those Christian Indians were an unacceptable security risk, and they rounded them up and interned them on the barren, windswept Deer Island in Boston Harbor. The minister who had established the praying towns, John Elliott, and the superintendent of the Praying Indians, Captain Daniel Gukin, protested against the move. Not only were they shut down, they received death threats. Elliot visited Deer Island in December of 1675 and reported that the island was bleak and cold, their wigwams poor and mean, their clothes few and thin. Ultimately, Half of the 500 or so people when turned on the island would die of malnutrition and exposure. Slavers also poached on the island. It was an ugly episode in a dirty war. The cruelty of the internment was apparent even in its day. What seemed to escape the authorities is that it was not a strategically sound move. The praying Indians were less a security risk than a potential asset as Benjamin Church would demonstrate when he formed his ranging company, comprised mainly of native warriors. And the act of interning the Christian Nipmuc only served to harden the resistance of the militants. I mean, if this is the way the English treat their friends... The Massachusetts authorities, in confederation with those of the other New England colonies, would make another questionable strategic decision in late 1675. It led to a smashing tactical triumph for the forces of the United Colonies, but it widened the war and brought a powerful faction of warriors into array against them. Convinced that the Narragansett of Rhode Island were going to enter the war against them in the spring, the United Colonies which in this context meant contingents from Massachusetts, Bay, Connecticut, and Plymouth, with the dissident Rhode Islanders refusing to participate. The United Colonies determined to launch a preemptive strike against the Narragansett in a campaign that would culminate in a fierce battle known as the Great Swamp Fight. The colonies had twice negotiated with the Narragansett, who were the most populous people uh, the most populous native people in southern New England, during the summer of 1675, trying to keep them out of the conflict. Had the Narragansett jumped in during that terrible summer and fall, when the Puritan settlements were reeling, those Puritan colonists would have been in a world of hurt. Even Boston 
would have been under serious threat. But the Narragansett's neutrality during those crucial months gained them no credit in the suspicious eyes of the colonists. A treaty in July of 1675 stipulated that the Narragansett must turn over Wampanoag refugees to the English authorities. And they didn't do that. And in the heat of war, the authorities decided that this was evidence of hostility, or at least incipient hostility. So that winter, the United Colonies assembled a force of 1,150 militiamen, augmented by about 150 Mohegan Indians, under their very effective war captain, Oneko, and a handful of Pequots who had been English allies since the 1630s when they had been crushed in a brief and brutal war in Connecticut. This force, which was put under the overall command of Plymouth Colony Governor Josiah Winslow, assembled at the Smith Garrison House in Wickford, Rhode Island in December, prepared to march into what was known as the Great Swamp. On December 15th, a party of Narragansett struck the nearby Bull Garrison, burned it, and killed 18 people. So it was clear that the possibility of further negotiation was long gone and hostilities were truly underway. Benjamin Church had been offered a command of a company, but he declined it. And uh, we don't know exactly why. He doesn't specify in his memoir why he declined this command. Instead, he took a position as General Winslow's aide. When Church arrived at the Smith Garrison House, supposed to be preparing for Winslow's arrival, he, being Benjamin Church, instead decided to go out ranging, and uh, he came back with 18 captives. The freebooting Captain Samuel Mosley, he of the semi-piratical crew, whose reputation as an Indian fighter at this time far exceeded that of uh, Benjamin Church, he also went out ranging, and he too came back to the Smith Garrison with 18 captives. And one of Mosley's captives, a man known to history as Indian Peter, would prove to be critical to the success of the campaign. Peter had apparently had a falling out with a Narragansett sachem, and as payback, he agreed to guide the English to the Narragansett fort deep in the swamp in an area that is now Kingston, Rhode Island. Under ordinary conditions, it would have been nearly impossible for the English force to penetrate the Great Swamp, but this was the Little Ice Age and December, and it was absolutely frigid, so cold that the bogs had frozen solid and the paths that Peter knew were suitable for traverse by this massive English force. So on December 19th, the colonial force moved into the swamp under bitter cold and snowy conditions with only one day's provisions, which is an indication of kind of the disarray of the uh, Puritan colonist military system at the time. It really kind of turned the campaign into a, a desperation gamble. In the early afternoon... On the 19th, the force took fire from Narragansett skirmishers, and they just rushed headlong after them. They ran into something that they'd never seen the likes of before. 
which was a very sophisticated fortification that encompassed four to five acres of high ground in the swamp. There were palisades and blockhouses and flanking towers designed to allow enfilade fire or raking fire against any enemy that, that got up to and onto the walls. A standing palisade of logs enclosed a large and very crowded village with about 500 well-constructed wigwams. Puritan historians refer to this fort, which was built under the direction of the very remarkable Narragansett Sachem, Canochet, uh, as a secret lair, reflecting their belief that this was a base from which they planned to launch an assault against the English settlements. Historian Nathaniel Philbrick has a very different take. In the end, the fort provided eloquent proof of who were the true aggressors in this conflict. Instead of joining the Poconokets and Nipmucks, the Narragansetts had spent the fall and winter doing everything in their power to defend themselves against an unprovoked Puritan attack. If ever there was a defensive structure, it was this fort. And now a thousand English soldiers were about to do their best to annihilate a community of more than 3,000 Indian men, women, and children who asked only to be left alone. Now keep that argument in mind because it's significant in how we view the strategic value of the fight that ensued, the Great Swamp Fight. General Winslow exerted very little command and control. He wasn't a professional soldier, and uh, this wasn't a professional army, and, and he did not have very good control over it. His men simply rushed at the fort and then discovered that the entrance, which was a giant log across a frozen moat, was a death funnel. They could only be assaulted in single file. Indian Peter led the settler force around the perimeter of the fort to a spot where the palisade was not complete, where the defenses were another log laid horizontally about four feet high across a gap defended by a blockhouse. A vigorous man could vault the log, and the English did, only to meet withering fire from the Narragansett defenders. Two Massachusetts captains, Isaac Johnson and Nathaniel Davenport, were shot down in the immediate assault, indicating that the Narragansett were picking out officers as targets. That first assault failed, but a second one breached the gap, and the fighting spilled into the interior of the fort. Douglas Leach offers a vivid description in his book, Flintlock and Tomahawk. With the arrival of other companies at the scene, the English determined upon another attempt to capture the fort, and so once more the troops rushed for the gap in the wall, clambered over the barricade, and poured into the area of the wigwams. The Indians again retreated stubbornly before the advancing soldiers, yielding ground only gradually. As the battle developed into a contest of firepower and marksmanship, both sides took advantage of the shelter afforded by the many closely huddled wigwams. The cold, crisp air was alive with a flash of muskets and thick with the smell of powder. Our man Benjamin Church couldn't bear to be out of the action, and he convinced General Winslow to allow him to lead 30 Plymouth militia volunteers into the fray. Church picks up the tale here. 
And remember that his memoir was dictated to his son and written in the third person. They entered the swamp and passed over the log that was the passage into the fort, where they saw many men and several valiant captains lie slain. Mr. Church, spying Captain Gardner of Salem amidst the wigwams in the east end of the fort, made towards him. But on a sudden, while they were still looking at each other in the face, Captain Gardner settled down. Mr. Church stepped to him, and seeing the blood run down his cheek, lifted up his cap, and calling him by his name, he looked up in his face, but spoke not a word, being mortally shot through the head. And observing his wound, Mr. Church found the ball entered his head on the side that was next the upland, where the English entered the swamp. So Gardner was killed by friendly fire, and Church immediately notified Winslow that, that his force was taking casualties from friendly fire, and Church led his men out of the fort to pursue Narragansetts who had abandoned their defenses and took to the trees outside, where they maintained fire on the English. Church found a broad and bloody track where the Narragansett had dragged away their wounded and dead, and he came upon a warrior who tried to surrender. Church always tried to use captives for battlefield intelligence, and he ordered his men not to touch the Indian, but a Plymouth soldier, who was amped up from combat, ran up and, and shot the warrior down to what Church described as his great grief and disappointment. Church's men got behind a party of Narragansetts who were firing into the fort from the woods outside, and when they rose up to discharge their muskets, gave them what he called an unexpected clap on the back. That's very much Church's style. And uh, those Narragansetts who were not killed by Church's volley fled into the swamp or back into the fort where they barricaded themselves in a blockhouse. Church decided that the best approach was to knock the blockhouse down with the defenders inside, but he took three musket shots, one of which penetrated a pocket and was stopped by a pair of mittens, another that grazed him, and one more that clipped his hip bone, which was uh, painful and, and uh, in 17th century conditions, a, a very dangerous wound. And uh, Church went down, and as he fell, he fired and wounded the Indian that had wounded him. At this point, the remaining Narragansett defenders were running out of powder and shot and had reverted to firing arrows at the attackers. The sun was setting, and it was clear that the English had won the fight. And many Narragansett fled into the swamp, but many others, including a lot of women and children were slaughtered in the fort as the English set fire to the wigwams. Puritan chronicler Increase Mather wrote, The English soldiers played the men wonderfully. The Indians also fought stoutly, but were at last beat out of their fort, which was taken by the English. There were hundreds of wigwams within the fort, which our soldiers set on fire, in the which men, women, and children, no man knoweth how many hundreds of them, were burnt to death. Church vociferously opposed burning the fort, not just because it was an act of needless brutality, but because 
it seemed to him that it was folly to burn down a viable shelter and the foodstuffs it contained with a frigid December night falling on an army that had had nothing to eat for most of the day. It seems logical, his position, but it didn't uh, have much impact on the Puritan leadership because their righteous wrath was roused and nothing would satisfy it but fire and blood. And they paid a price for it. The night march 15 miles back to the Smith Garrison at Wickford was an absolute nightmare. The men were freezing cold and starving, and they were in constant fear that the Narragansett would rally and ambush them in the swamp. Of course, the Narragansett had their own problems that they did not try to attack the militia column. 22 wounded men died on the march. In all, about 80 men of the United Colonies Force were KIA, or died of wounds later. About 200 men were wounded. Many of them were disabled. Um, and that made for a casualty rate of about 30%. It was a very high price to pay for the victory. The Narragansett body count was huge. Approximately 300 warriors presumed killed in the fort and immediately around it, and another 300 non-combatants killed when the fort was set ablaze. It's unknown how many wounded died after fleeing from the fort into the freezing swamp. It seems likely that somewhere around 1,000 Narragansetts died in or as a result of the Great Swamp Fight. It was a very heavy blow. There's no question that it was a very heavy blow to the Narragansett. And, and in some ways, it's accurate to say that they never recovered from it. No question that the Great Swamp Fight was a, a tremendous tactical victory, although a very costly one, for the English forces. And those forces were obviously not well disciplined, but they did conduct themselves with heroic bravery and also very great cruelty. Whether the Great Swamp Fight was a strategic victory or not depends on how you view the Narragansett's posture at the end of 1675. If the fort in the Great Swamp was a secret lair, a base of operations, that meant that they were really poised to enter the war in the spring, as the Puritan authorities believed. And in that case, then, then the preemptive strike in the Great Swamp was effective. It definitely damaged their capacity. Not only did they lose many warriors and their families, they also lost their fortified base and a huge amount of supplies, so the warriors that were left were hobbled by hunger and the need to find provision for their surviving family members. If you see the Narragansetts as Philbrick does, as maintaining a somewhat defiant and defensive neutrality, then the Great Swamp Fight was a strategic blunder. The Narragansett were now at war for real, and there was still a lot of them left to move north into Nipah country, and join the warriors who were conducting the campaign against the English settlers. The young Sachem Kanonchet would lead his warriors in numerous attacks in 1676, including burning Providence, Rhode Island, to the ground. 
As is often the case, I find Philbrick's assessment pretty compelling. It's absolutely true that the Narragansetts certainly were not fully abiding by their treaty obligations. They weren't handing over refugees as demanded, and the Sachem Quinnipeg actually married the Wampanoag Sachem Wiedemu. But lack of full compliance to English demands does not equate to a war footing. And given the nature of Native society, it would have been... uh, probably more than could be expected for them to turn away and especially to turn over refugees. The construction of the fort at great labor and expense seems to me, as it does to Philbrick, a defensive move by a people who wanted to be left alone. It's also worth noting that when the Narragansett first approached the Nipmuc, the Nipmuc fired upon them, which they wouldn't have done if there was a a concerted plot afoot. They had to be convinced, actually, that the Narragansett were now joining the fight. Triumph or blunder, the die was now cast in what would become the endgame in King Philip's War. And... We keep calling it King Philip's War, but you've probably noticed that we haven't seen King Philip, or Metacomet, in quite a while. Wampanoag warriors, as few as they were, and remember that Philip Metacomet really only had uh, about 40 warriors to bring to the battlefield in 1675, they participated in, in Nipmuc led attacks during the summer and fall of 1675. But Metacomet knew that he had to build a broader coalition if he was going to to triumph or even survive. In the winter of 1675-76, he moved into the New York colony, thinking he could recruit Mohican warriors, not to be confused with Mohegan enemies, and maybe even some Mohawk warriors from the mighty Iroquois Confederacy. This is a terrible read of the geopolitical situation. Governor Andros of New York didn't like Puritans and was not inclined to help his neighboring New England colonies in their time of crisis, but he wasn't going to tolerate an Indian insurgent raising a force in his territory to attack Englishmen either. The Mohawk cared nothing at all for the Wampanoag and their allies. The Mohawk were staunch allies of the English in New York, who were their major trading partner, and the source of the firearms with which they and their kin had dominated the fur trade from New York to the Great Lakes. Andros asked his Mohawk allies to run Metacomet off. Metacomet had by this time recruited about 900 people He agreed to leave and decamp for western Massachusetts. Unfortunately for him, a few angry Wampanoag hotheads killed a couple of Mohawks on their way out of New York, which was a huge mistake. The Mohawk were about the last people in North America that you wanted to piss off. In February of 1676, a force of nearly a thousand Mohawks fell upon Metacomet's winter encampment. And the Mohawk ran Metacomet's people into the forest and hunted them down. Ultimately, they slew about 
400 of Metacomet's people. It was a terrible blow, and by far the worst defeat Metacomet took during the war that bears his name. And he got away because he was still a first-rate escape artist, but this Mohawk attack effectively destroyed his chance of being an effective field commander. Even when Metacomet resumed attacks on the English in the spring of 1676, his people lived in constant terror of another Mohawk attack. Ultimately, Metacomet and the remnants of his force would flee out of the reach of the Mohawk and back into his Rhode Island homeland, where Benjamin Church and his rangers would hunt them down. I'd like to welcome two new patrons to our campfire, Larry Richardson and Robert Buckholtz. If you're interested in uh, throwing down a few plues to support the Frontier Partisans podcast and, and the Frontier Partisans blog, a uh, link to the Patreon page is with the show notes. Patron support really is critical to the production of the Frontier Partisans podcast, and uh, we've got a few irons in the fire here that uh, that I think are going to be very interesting uh, coming up in the future, uh, sort of inspired by Benjamin Church and uh, a writing project and a podcasting project that revolves around the ranger as a cultural archetype. And uh, so a lot of my research is turning in that direction and uh, the patron support helps greatly with that as well as just keeping the, the lights on at Frontier Partisans headquarters. The hosting fees and other costs of producing a podcast so y'all are very much appreciated ash harry kaiser mike mciver wade mcknight Chaz clifton bob dice alan godseff jerry nunnally el randolito christopher west free live free paul mcnamee david rolson and rick schwertfeger and uh Patron or not, anyone who's listening to this podcast and sharing it with their their friends, uh, you're greatly appreciated. Um, just got to notice that uh, we've hit 50,000 downloads, which is, I think, a, a worthy milestone. Much appreciated. It's very gratifying that these stories of the frontier are resonating with folks in the 21st century. So that's it for me for today, and we'll see you down the trail.